It's really easy to go from feeling like you're either on top of the mountain or underneath it. Like you're only defined by your accomplishments or only worth what other people think of you. Just because you were born in the skin you're in doesn't guarantee you're going to be comfortable in it. Our guest today wrote some of the all-time great songs of the 20th century. He got all the cash and prizes and acclaim someone could ever wish for. And none of it filled that emptiness inside. So our guest today is going to tell his story about all the Grammys, Oscars, and television appearances. Had absolutely nothing to do with the amazing life he lives today. And so without further ado, here is the legendary Paul Williams. You ready? Mm, no. Okay, now I am. Okay, so let me paint a picture of what's happening right now. We are in a small hotel room. Exactly. It's not ideal. There will be horns and honking and bellhops and vacuums is what I've heard so far. Well, we'll, and we'll conclude the operate this, this conversation right before the cops get here. We have used two nightstands to set up the microphones. I rented a room with enough extra furniture in it to build this setup. This is... I'm impressed. You know, it's like, I, it's, you, you were kind of apologetic about it when we, you know, when I arrived and I, I why are you kidding? I lived in a place about a third this size, you know, when I lived in Echo Park for a lot of years. So come on. So Paul, don't be humble. Tell us who you are. Give us the resume. I'm a songwriter. And I'm a sober alcoholic. I'm a dad and a husband. And if you add the the right combination of of alcohol and and uh, and cocaine, I am an arrogant, a loudmouth liar and a and a thief, you know. But for twenty seven years, I've I've been uh, been given a whole new life that I couldn't have imagined. I'm you know I I started out as an actor, and occasionally still get to act. But in my life, no, as a gift when when I when I couldn't make a living as a as a young man trying to. When, you know, I looked like a kid when I was in my early 20s until you put me next to a real kid. Then I looked like a kid with a hangover is the, you know, the line that I've always used because it's the truth. So I couldn't make a living as, as, an, as an actor. And I, and I started writing songs for my own amusement. And it, it was, again, Noah's gift. I, I found a, a life that, was, that has been spectacularly exciting and has taken me to places I couldn't have imagined. You know, I started out writing in the in the, in the late sixties, and and uh, you know, I was never part of the the kind of the Laurel Canyon, Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Stills, Nash crowd. I you know, I desperately wanted to be. I was a little hippie who was you know doing, you know, psychedelics and and the like in the early sixties. And when I started writing songs, what came out was very kind of middle of the road, throwback to earlier writing styles of you know. I I was I loved the the Great American Songbook. I loved Gershwin and Sinatra and and Cole Porter and uh, so when I started writing songs, the the songs that came out were, were much more middle of the road. But I had I had about three years of writing songs that were all recorded, almost all recorded, and never made the airways. They were B sides and album cuts. Remember B sides? You young enough to remember, no. remember B sides? Well, these little round things called forty five records that had had a, a, a an A side where the the you know the the hit song was on the B side. I had a lot of B sides. You got paid for both, incidentally, which was very cool. But then I I started getting hits with with uh, well well I, I, let me take it back to the very first 
two songs I ever had recorded. One was a song called It's Hard to Say Goodbye for somebody named Claudine Auger, and the other one was the B-side of, of, Tiny, of Tiny Tim's Tiptoe Through the Tulips, a song I wrote with Biff Rose called Feel Your Heart. And I want, you know, again, that feeling like an outsider. I wanted to be a part of that rock and roll, wonderful in, inside world. And, and I, you know, uh, to have a song recorded by Tiny Tim was not, do you, do you know who Tiny Tim was? Tiny yeah. Tim, he was, he was tiptoe through the tulip. The song on the other side was Fill Your Heart. And, and what I would like to have had is had somebody really very hip and very rock and roll record that. A great lesson in what happened to me because that song later on was heard either by by Tiny Tim or by Biff Rose, you know, by uh, by David Bowie who recorded it. It was the first song he ever recorded that he didn't write. It was on the Hunky Dory album. So once again, it was uh, there. There was a wonderful little life lesson there that the route to what you your heart desires may not be a route that you can plan. You know, that was a, a, a lesson that I observed later on. But I started writing songs for the Carpenters. I wrote, I wrote a, a bank commercial that became a, a hit song with the Carpenters called We've Only Just Begun. I wrote Rainy Days and Mondays, uh, I Won't Last Today Without You, Let Me Be the One. With Three Dog Night, I had three hits uh, out in the country, Family of Man, an old-fashioned love song. I wrote You and Me Against the World for uh, for Helen Reddy, and these are all songs that y- your young listeners probably have very little uh, in, uh, knowledge of. Star is Born with, with Barbara Streisand, I wrote most of the songs, including Evergreen, which won the, the Grammy for Song of the Year and, and the Oscar. Uh, I've written, through the years, many, many, many songs with my favorite recording artists ever, the Muppets, including The Rainbow Connection that I wrote with Kenny Asher. Uh, the Carpenter songs, incidentally, with a gentleman named Roger Nichols. I've had great writing partners through the years. The collaborative art experience and... and uh, most recently, what your listeners and I, I assume that they are of all ages and and all the, the brightest and and the most spiritually evolved. The most recent success, as far as writing is concerned, was uh, I wrote two songs on the Random Access Memory album for with uh, Daft Punk. We won the Grammy for Album of the Year. I wrote the lyrics to Beyond and to Touch, which I sing on the album. Um, what else? The Love Boat. Love exciting and new. I wrote the words to The Love Boat. Uh, and I've just, I've had a spectacular life. Uh, I started recording as well and uh, promoting that by, by, you know, by doing, you know, to, you know, doing the, the circuit of radio and television and the like. And in the 70s, uh, I, you know, I, I started, you know, I did 48 Tonight shows. And I think essentially I became better at showing off than showing up. I think my craft as a songwriter began to to fade. My my I I loved the attention. Uh, it made me feel like I was finally one of the guys, which is which was amplified by a certain amount of cocaine that took me way past one of the guys into "Come Touch the Hem," and I don't. <laughs> but but. Um, the the amazing career that I had was gone by the 80s. I didn't realize it because I was loaded. And again, a line that I've used too many times is, you know, you know you're an alcoholic when you misplace a decade. And I did the 80s. Got sober. I had my last drink in 1989. My sober birthday is March 15, 1990. And it's been the, the most amazing gift, certainly for the people around me. And f- most importantly, it's given me 
uh, a sense of connectedness to the world that I, I never felt before. And that's the longest I ever want to talk about myself again. You have to start talking. <laughs> okay. Well, to add to uh, life on life's terms, this microphone stand keeps drifting. So let me adjust it real quick. It does. Do we need to... Do we need to go start at the beginning and pretend we've never talked? Or I don't think that would be appropriate. I think we should leave all the mistakes in and learn from them. I will learn from my mistakes and not defend them is one of the affirmations in the book that Tracy Jackson and I wrote together, Gratitude and Trust. With you being such a, a public figure and you're on The Tonight Show 48 times. 48 times, yeah. And writing songs that huge, huge stars are singing, and very publicly. And songwriters aren't always in the light, but yeah. you were. It's easy to frame your story as a fall from grace. But the more I dug into you and kind of studied your life, I kind of feel like that's, that's an easy way to frame it, because us as people, we've been telling that story, the cautionary yeah. tale, Icarus getting too close to the sun, uh, the fall from grace, because it fits in a nice box. But when it comes to your story, I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's not a story of a fall from grace, because during your greatest achievements, you didn't have grace. No, exactly. It, it's a story of finding grace yeah. after that. And so there's two parts of your life. There's this huge thrust into superstardom where you left art that is incredible, Thank you. And then there's this other half of your life where after that, there's a break, and it's about you going on your own journey and finding a life for yourself. You know, I think it started when I was a little kid. I was this tiny little guy that could run under coffee tables, you know, when I was like eight or nine. And they gave me shots to make me grow. Uh, and it, it, 19, uh, 1948, they didn't know anything about such things or, or didn't know what they needed to know because what they did was the exact opposite thing of what they should have done. I was given male hormone by a doctor in Albuquerque because he's, this will make him grow. Well, it did the opposite. It closed off the bones and, and kicked me into puberty at like age nine. So all of a sudden I was I had no interest in my toy, the toy chest, but my mother's friend's chests were wonderfully exciting. And I was, I was, uh, you know, this was observed, and they they kind of backed off the shots right away. And, and but it, it kind of screwed up my body clock, so I didn't hit puberty till I was out of high school. So uh, there was this this feeling of, of separateness, aloneness that was n neatly covered with a lot of glib. You know, a lot of not feeling what 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 was you know, you know, a, a childhood that I look back on it that looks like. Uh, I mean, it's Dickensian. It was like really sad. And my dad was killed in a car wreck when I was 13, drunk. And, and uh, dad was drunk, not me. Shipped off to live with an aunt and uncle. So there's all this separateness. And I think that, that some of those things, including the pre-puberty, puberty, puberty that I experienced, led me towards this writing what I've you know, jokingly referred to as codependent anthems, but they're very open, needy songs. And they were very, you know, I Won't Last Today Without You is, is, would, would be a classic example of a song that is not a healthy thought, but it's what I felt. And when I wrote what I felt, other people responded. And I think when I started to get the attention I think there's there's some little piece in the back of my head that that was unconsciously, yeah. Uh, it was not a celebration. It was uh, it was perhaps that little place that says you you know that you, you this is such strange new territory. Do you really belong here? And what came out of my mouth was the opposite. You know, I mean, what came out of my mouth was was no sense of of not belonging. What came out of my mouth was like nobody intimidates me. 
the more intimidating the experience, the louder I and more glib I got. And so to strike authentic Paul in, in Paul, Paul authentic Polly in the midst of all that, you know, the the one place where it probably emerged was in the songs. I didn't fall from grace. I was I was lifted up to a place of 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 awareness where you know I I got lifted up to a place that was just slightly above my own ego and fear and all that where I, I was lifted up to a place where I felt like I belonged. You know, I think I think that you know the it, it alcoholism and, and addiction are are isolating diseases. And being a human can being a human can be an isolating disease. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I look at my granddaughter, and I like she she looks so evolved and so aware, and that's like she knows so much. And I want to go. Don't forget. Don't forget. Don't let this this sense of being people and how uncomfortable it can be, especially at the beginning. You don't let don't 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 forget all the stuff you know all the all the angelic grace that's a part of who you are at this moment. Hang on to it. Uh, yeah, you know my my life was. I, I feel like I've had two really very different lives. I had you know the there are two very different careers. One life, two careers. And the first career I did as as like a, kind of like an an escape or trying to trying to 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 become something, and what I became is a famous drunk. And the second half is is was an escape where I escaped to to home, you know. Uh, yeah, I just you know, for the first time in in, in my life, I. I was not overwhelmed with with the feeling of being different. I'd sit in a circle of of alcoholics, and and uh, for the first time in my life, just felt that I was with my tribe, you know. And slowly but surely, those there the elements of of that process began to began to appear or I, I, I found that I began to use them in my own in my own life in my writing I'll give you an example I was about a year sober when I was asked to write the the songs for the Muppet Christmas Carol and when you think about it what an amazing opportunity to to write about Scrooge who is in the midst of a spiritual awakening when I am at the very beginnings of this path and it's my own spiritual awakening and uh, I read the I read the script. I read the the original book, Dickens, you know, Christmas Carol. And the opening of the of the of the the picture that you you see a door opens and you just see Scrooge's feet as he's walking along. And as he goes by, all these little creatures they seem to get colder. Well. You know, it's in my head and in my heart. I know what what the story's about. I know I know what I'm supposed to be writing. I'm supposed to be writing. Disney wanted a Scrooge "I Am" song, and all of a sudden, the way that I did it was a the first example of of writing within with the with the relief of recovery and the principles of recovery, and that that was that I was not in charge. What I did was I took 
a little recorder, and I went out and I sat in a little park close to the plate. I was living in Brentwood at the time with my girlfriend. And I prayed about it. I, I said, you know what, Big Amigo? I called the higher power Big Amigo. And Big Amigo, I need to write this song. I, you know what it's, whatever those forces in there, you know what it's supposed to be about. So let me know when you have an idea. And I picked up a Lawrence Block noir mystery. Circle back to the start of this talk. And I, and I started reading. I mean, not thinking anything about about Muppet Christmas Carol or Scrooge or anything. And I about three pages into this this noir novel, I put it down and I went, okay, wait a minute. And I picked up the recorder and I clicked it on and I went, okay, he's walking. But a bump 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 bum. When a cold wind blows, it chills you, chills you to the bone. But there's nothing in nature that freezes your heart like years of being alone. I went, wow, that's not bad, you guys. That's pretty good. It paints you with indifference like a lady paints with rouge. And the worst of the worst, the most hated and cursed is the one that we call Scrooge. I did not consciously think about any of that. And it came out of me. And it was a, a, a beautiful example, an immediate example for me of what life can be like if we live, you know, in a place of, of trust and openness and, and, and in a way, egoless performance. It, it, it's interesting, egoless performance, because those two words don't really go together. And at some point in this process, I have begun to believe the, the less I claim it, the better, better chance it has of, of emerging full-born. Full I think that whole, you know, somehow I, I miss that, you know, that place of feeling like I was a really big deal. I mean, I was just, you know, it was just sort of safe to be out there. One of the lines that stuck with me listening to you is that you always felt different. And the chase for fame and recognition, when you were getting fame and recognition, it f temporarily fed this desire to, as you put it, feel more special and less different. Yeah. And that's something that resonates with me. I think it's universal where we want to be these special, unique beings, but we also want to be accepted and included yeah. and not outsiders. And so the hits you got, the little like highs you got from hitting fame and recognition and starting to feel like you said that it made you feel normal like it yeah. elevated you to the status of regular human being it took oscars and grammys to elevate you to the status of every person walking yeah. around the street it feels like you hit that later in life on a more sustainable way and i just what is the journey to really accepting yourself and, and above that loving yourself and allowing yourself to be unique but also feel normal I'm not sure there is a normal. I think there's everybody has their own kind of way of, of you know fitting into the rest of the world and all. And, and we probably, you know, we're all inside ourselves looking at each other. When I was a kid, that used to amaze me. I would, and, and for some reason, it bothered me. <laughs> this is I've never, never even thought to admit this to, or thought about it, even discussing this with anybody. But I think that. I think that I was so defended 
from such an early age that I was I felt so out of place. And I I think that on some weird level I felt really special. I think that it's 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 interesting those two tracks running together at the same time. It feelings so different and 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 in in recovery looking back on it and seeing it as really isolated. I think part of what I created for myself as you know as a little kid was just this this sort of you know, with with all the sad, heartbreaking things that were happening to me, my I went off to, was shipped off to live with an aunt and uncle, and and uh, and the aunt had me write letters to my mom that said I didn't want to go home because she said if you go home, you'll you'll every bite of food you take will be, you'll take out of your little brother's mouth. So and even though I wanted to go home, I I wrote these letters that said I wanted to stay. You know. I, I, as I said, I, it's, you know, I look at that as as an adult. I look a sober adult. Look at that, and I go, "Why weren't you just sobbing and screaming and running away and and experiencing all that emotion?" And I wasn't. I was in this sort of. I was in kind of a sidecar to all the emotions I should have been feeling. You know, as I was go riding through life, I was next to myself, kind of not feeling. And it's exactly what cocaine did for me, incidentally. I, I remember sitting next to a young lady who was sobbing because she wanted me to get sober and she was afraid I was dying and I'd been lying to her and she knew that and all. And I remember sitting there next to her thinking, on, uh, having, uh, being aware of all these emotions I should be feeling and not feeling them. So I don't, you know, I don't know how or why I wound up in that place, but I did. I got to the place where where hanging out with with Robert Mitchum or uh, or or sitting on Johnny's couch or or walking down the street where everybody knew who I was because they did. You know, there's not a lot, not a lot of people that looked like me. I was on the tube all the time, but that felt like that was mid range. You know, that was mid range for me. That was, you know, I I didn't know. What I what I experienced after the eighties, you know, because the eighties were, you know, that was just just hiding. I mean, I was I got to the point where I would send my manager to have creative meetings on my on my behalf, and come back and tell me what what they wanted. I mean, just the arrogance of that, the <laughs> the fear that 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 is obviously in that that kind of enforced isolation. It's like. God, it sounds like I was, you know, Howard Hughes or somebody. And the fact is, I was just this pathetic little drunk and and cocaine addict who was peeking out the Venetian blinds at two in the morning, looking for the tree police because I knew they were out there, you know. But but once I got sober, I felt uh, this. Then I then I felt connected. Then I felt like I belonged. Then I felt as close to what what I would call normal. But I also felt just like I'd been gifted something that was so much bigger than than the you know the the fame or, or the uh, and you know we 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 make amends you know we rebuild where we can we seek out the people that we've hurt the most and try to try to fix that try to improve their lives when we can but ultimately the the last twenty seven years of my life have been the most rewarding. The, the most exciting and 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 the most calm I love that I love you know I love that sensation of just <sighs> big breath and where I'm fine right where I am 
Yeah, amends are huge. It's played a huge part in my finding a, a great life for myself. Um, I stole professional harmonicas out of a car when I was 16. And it was like probably some flea market artist. You know, it wasn't a fancy car. And so uh, I walk around with some Lee Oscar harmonicas. They're all, it was like a whole range, but I just buy C because I figure that's most universal. And I just wait for the right people to come across to give them a harmonica. To give them a harmonica. Because, because uh, I don't know the person who I stole from, but it's as um, my mentor kind of says, it's like, it's about restoring balance. Yeah. And from what you took from the world, you need to put back. I'm so grateful I'm not in prison. I should have been for yeah. tons of reasons. Me too. I'm so grateful I didn't kill somebody. Yeah. I, I, you know, I remember being in my car. I lived up in the West Hollywood Hills. I remember driving my car about three in the morning down to Sunset, grabbed a right, and then turned left down La Cienega where it drops down the hill. And as the front of the nose of my car, my little red Ferrari at the time, Mr. Big Shot, as the front of my car dropped down, there was a guy standing in the crosswalk who put his arms up like he was being arrested. And if I'd had another coat of paint on the car, I'd have hit him. Oh, if my I'd God. Had another, and like I could close my eyes and see him. And if that, if it's, I mean, my it's it's amazing. My hands are absolutely tingling right now with that memory. That that if you if you really want to be grateful, take a look at some of those little Polaroids for, of bad behavior, and uh, that you got away with it, that you didn't kill somebody, that I didn't, and I'm not sitting in a jail, or just not carrying that around with me. We have a lot to be grateful for. I, for the last nine years, I've, I've, since 1972, I've been a member of ASCAP, which is the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers. You're the president, aren't you? I'm president no, and chairman no. of the board of ASCAP for nine years now. And we have an annual thing that's called ASCAP Expo, and it's hundreds and hundreds of, of young writers and, and the most acclaimed writers and all that gather and, and for three days and all. And I walk around there, and it's, hey, Paul, how are you? Wait a minute. And I feel like what high school must have felt like, you know, <laughs> when you were anybody but me. I don't feel like the president or the chairman of, of, of ASCAP. I feel like a songwriter among songwriters. That's a pure gift of recovery. That's a pure gift of recovery. Because the first time I ever totally felt that that connectedness was, was when I – when I turned to other human beings and I said, I don't know what to do. Will you help me? Incidentally, that's the most spectacular part of, of that process to this day. When somebody sits down across from you and says, you know, well, I got five years and I'm doing great and all. And then they slowly kind of run out of steam and go, shit, I can't do this anymore. I got to tell the truth. I had, I'd had a drink after midnight. I, I don't even have it today. And they just, the intense love you feel in that, that moment when somebody is willing to share who they are at the depths of their, you know, the, the, the horror of their addiction and all. Instead of covering it up, they make that choice at that moment of going, this is who I am right now. Will you help me? Is a holy moment for everybody involved. And out of that holy moment is, is my life was built. The life I have today was built out of that holy moment when I, 
you know, I was not caught up in those, you know, who I used to think I was moments, but, but I, but I would caught up in like, I can't do this anymore. Lead me, lead me someplace, lead, lead me to, to, you know, show me what to do. To, you know, hear the reins, hear the reins. You do it. You do it. Fix me. Fix me. Man, the, uh, I have learned the power of honesty and vulnerability and asking for help. I mean, those are some, those are some of the big ones that I cling to on a daily basis. I, I learned early in recovery that if I was just honest, doors opened. Yeah. You know, there's such noise out there of people, you know, constantly posting vacation photos and that they, <laughs> oh that, that they just got the dream job and this and that. And when somebody's honest, when you are talking to somebody about their vacation and they tell you that they, the couple got in a huge fight on the way to the waterfall yeah and they somehow made it to the waterfall and made up and took that picture like that that yeah that is the magic you know that's the realness is that it's it's authentic it's It's authenticity that is that is you know the the other thing is that that with 27 years sobriety i still have that you know the the you know, the bullshit, the, the fear-based bullshit emerges. I'll give you a classic example. If somebody comes up to me and says, you're in the music business, you must know uh, Herb Fendelman, you know. And now I understand I have no idea who Herb Fendelman is. But my head is already going up and down, nodding yes. So it's <laughs> like, too. you know, it's like, you know. So I'm like, you know, and, and, and I'm thinking, and, and up there we're going through the names to try to whatever, because I know I'm supposed to know who Herb Fendelman is, you know, and I'll be an asshole if he finds out I don't know who Herb Fendelman is, but eventually the nodding head will stop and I'll say, no, I'm sorry, I don't know who that is. And they'll go, well, there's no way you would. He's my cousin. He wants to be in the business. But, but uh, you know, it's, uh, but what is it? That's the bond. That's the bondage of self. That part, I mean, the, the bondage of self is, is, is to me, that part of me that is afraid to have let people, let people know that, that I don't know. That, that I cannot learn if unless I stop and say, I don't know what you teach me. And, and I begin to grow and I begin to open up and I, you know, everything get, begins to, to, to be real when I'm real, when I'm willing to let you know that I have, don't have a clue. I, and, and the only way I'm ever going to learn that stuff is to be honest. And that's all. And that's new behavior for me. And it's still something I deal with. You do too. You just, I love that. Yeah the patience and comfort in your own skin and all the coming to grips with who you are, letting it be, really letting your soul express itself is such an amazing constant journey. Every year it gets better and better. Every year I'm not looking at the ground, I'm looking up at the buildings to appreciate the architecture or I'm taking a seat on the bench even though I'm running late and looking at the, how green everything is that day. And God, I, re- I resonate with that so much. It just gets so much better. And I feel like I'm still uncomfortable with my own skin yeah. all the time. So I can just imagine <laughs> like if I get a couple more minutes a day of that comfort, it is, that's what it's about. You know, I want to. I, I'm thinking two things at the same time. One is I wanted to share that that I remember in early sobriety, looking at a building that it was painted a horrible color, and thinking how fantastic the painter was when he got the job to paint it. Called his wife and said, "You know what? I'm 
I got, it's a, it's a four-story apartment building, you know, and I'm going to paint it, you know, we uh, we're, we can pay the rent for the next few months, you know, it's like, so my thinking went from in, in that, that big switch from going, ooh, who would fucking paint that building that color to, what did it feel like to get the, that big a job, you know, whatever, <laughs> it's like... And the and the the same thought at the same at the same time I was having was about you, and about, I mean you're you're sitting at a place where your life you know essentially your whole life is ahead of you, you know and and to to have a, a instead of one dot on the horizon you know that you know that that, that you you know you you feel like you're evolved enough to be like accepting and that that. Where your where your life is is gonna go is a, a, that wonderful combination of the opportunities will come, the success will come. I don't feel I don't you don't feel like you know you know you're in any sort of a panic statement state. I mean even, I don't even even know if you've chosen the specific thing one thing you want to do. You feel like you're already past it. You're, that there's a lot of things to do, and that and you're comfortable with that. Because that's what that's where I am right now. I finally got to a place where it's like I have no idea what I'm going to do, but I'm going to love it. You know? Yeah. Well, I certainly have not evolved. Uh, it's been a slow recovery, but uh, but do you know what I mean, though. It's yeah, like, oh, it's totally. like not being caught up in that. I I will be I will be whole when I get that when I am doing that. You know? Yeah. I sometimes I slip back into that, but you know, every year I focus on on this kind of stuff. I feel like every year I get an extra second when it matters. And so um, rather, you know, when something happens and I want to just be on a hairpin trigger and explode, I get another second. So now I'm up to six seconds. And I feel like often somebody, my girlfriend, my mom, somebody will do something where I would have just snapped and I get to think about it for five seconds. And uh, it is amazing. It is, But when it comes to comfort, Wow, I don't know what has happened. I am very comfortable with where I'm at right now. And I have no way to think about how I'm going to pay the bills. But I am just so happy creating. And I just figure, like, if I'm just creating, whether it's writing or recording or trying to learn video, or I used to do a lot of sculpture, um, it's going to be okay. And uh, Seneca used to spend some time a couple days a month as a homeless person and it was just to remind himself like the bottom isn't so bad you no. have you have nothing to be scared of and and yeah you know if i if i have to get a part-time job so be it you know but this is where i want to be and i feel like for the for the first time i have given myself an opportunity to not live in regret later how could you have done the things you've done and lived the life? How, how old are you, 20, 29? Oh, God. I normally check Facebook. I think I'm 28. 28. <laughs> <laughs> how could you do have the life you've had for the last 28 years and not, not – I mean, it's like from where I'm sitting right now, it's like your, your future is just – I mean, you can do anything. You could do anything, and I don't. And you know, I feel that about people, but sometimes it's a stretch. I mean, part of it is like, okay, I am the all-seeing, all-knowing Pali Lama, and you know, <laughs> and so it, you know, so the Pali Lama says you can do anything, and your future opens up in front of you, and like like that. But I don't always feel that about people, but I do about you. 
I Thank think you. that yeah, I think that you, that 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 this is really going to be a really interesting ride, you know, and and uh, that's exactly what I want to be to my son is my mom, no money, no good reason to follow the artist's life. Made no sense. I mean, yeah. made no sense. Your loved ones will be like, "What are you crazy?" Yeah. But I got to watch somebody live in their dream, and her dream wasn't reward. She still has simple house, yeah, old, older yeah. car. Like her stuff is not material. That's not what she's in it for. But it's just to. It's because you gotta, you gotta do it. It's in your heart. You have to do it. And so, I don't want Jax to see me working a job I hate no. so I can afford some nice things for us on the weekend. I want my son to see somebody who trusts that calling. You know, it. I was such an a imaginative kid. I think most of us are, right? And ki- kids are a little bit immature. There goes the phone. It's uh, all right. They're trying to kick me out of the hotel room. But Shut up. Leave us alone. Um, but... Oh, God, where was I? Oh, but there's, you know, as kids, we're a little bit immature. We think we're going to be like the Bruce Wayne. We're going to be like multi-billionaires with the Batcave and all the gadgets. And, um, <laughs> but that imaginative feeling that, like, I have something that I want to give to the world, whether or not they receive it, and to act on it. You know, at my old job, I did good work and I liked the job. But I always felt like one day I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah. One day. And it literally took them letting me go yeah. to do it. And I finally just said. No is a gift. It's the biggest gift ever. No is a gift. You're referred to on the internet as a hit maker. You just wrote hits after hits after hits. But there's a difference that I just wanted to pick your brain about where it wasn't like you were a producer who was producing catchy songs that hit the billboards. Mm -hmm. You've produced really timeless pieces that a lot of people attribute to the artists who sang your work. But for artists, for creatives, do you have a read on what made them transcend decades? What makes them still as relevant today as as they were when they were written? It's that it's that uh, that a word is authenticity. I think I think that they were authentically what I was feeling, and other people feel the same things. I don't think what I don't think our differences are why we can't. You know, I, I don't think. Let, let me rephrase it. I don't think that that there is some special gift of, of of difference or uniqueness that that is in a piece of art that allows that piece of art, you know, to, to touch another soul is that it's what we have in common. We're so similar in our, in our, you know, in the, the, the range of emotions that when I write what I call ouch mommy songs, pick me up and love me, you know, need Mr. Needy songs. There's a lot of people that feel that, you know, you know, we, we all want to look and sound hip and Mr. You know, Mr. On top of it. But the fact is, I think that so many people carry this stuff that I write about in their chest. You know, I think I think that uh, I mean there are exceptions. I mean, old-fashioned love song is a catchy little song, whatever, and the like. But but the songs, the meatier things that I've done, and I think especially the stuff with with the Muppets, you know, like something like the Rainbow Connection, is something that 
that will, I hope, you know, will last forever. And I think it's because of the, the not that there, you know, there's not answers in it. It's a song about questions. It's a, why are there so many songs? Who said that every wish would be heard and answered of wished on the morning star? Somebody thought of that. Someone believed it. Look what it's done so far. Is I mean, that's, that's what's going on in my head and my heart around the clock. There's something about that faith, that trust, that what we dwell on, that, that what we dwell on, we create, that is a tool for me that keeps me rolling into a positive thought because if I trust, not, not the easiest thing to explain, but, but, but I know what I mean. And what I mean is there is, I, I, believe in, you know, I believe in magic. I believe that we have the capacity you know, to totally uh, affect our future with, uh, with our own attitude. And it's, and it's at the, the most powerful element in all that is, is, is kindness. I don't think there's anything more, more effective or, or more powerful in, in my actions on a daily basis than, than getting that little prick in the middle of my ears sometimes to shut up and listen and feel, begin to feel safe. It's why, it's why the recovering community is important to me. When I'm around other people that are, that are in recovery, there's there's a safety that that I feel, and when I feel safe, I, you know, I I I'm not defended, I'm not uh, aggressive, and I, and I can and I can experience that kindness that I'm talking about. I, I gotta back up um, for a second. So when I first started researching you, I, I started with the documentary about you still alive. Yeah, and there was these moments of oh he wrote that song, oh he wrote that song, and you became a really interesting stranger. And I was like, wow, this guy has done so many cool things. And in the movie, fans are crying when they're going to meet you. And I was like, wow, that's so cool that you've affected these people in that way. And then I started reading your book, which is on recovery and growth. And I like recovery and growth, so I was enjoying the book. But I took a break and uh, put on the album Evergreen, uh, or Evergreens. Evergreen, your, yeah. Your album? Yeah. About halfway through, a couple notes started playing, and I just started crying. Because, and I didn't quite at that moment when those notes played know why, but then as the song played on, excuse me, when as the song played on, I realized that it was you and me against the world. <sighs> and that was the first time the television, it was, it, it was on the Muppets, and that was the first time the television ever told me that what was going on my, with my life with a single mom was okay. And you were no longer some interesting stranger who had made a bunch of really cool songs. You were somebody that had impacted my life without me even knowing it. And so I just have so much gratitude for that moment. And I just think it's so cool that I, I get to meet you and say thank you for that. And... You know, the, through the years, people have come up to me and said that they were raised by a single mom, and, and the song was meaningful to them. And it was—I always said it was a heart payment. And but this is industrial strength for me to hear this from you, and and you know, and it makes me cry, and it makes you cry, and I think that. The part of it is that I have such a massive respect for your mom, 
and I know I know of the struggles, and I mean, and in some ways, your mom is, is you know, is, is somebody that I love that that I don't that that I haven't spent I spent very little time with, but at the beginning of my journey, she was somebody that I watched, and it's like so to hear. I'm sorry to hear that from you is I could I could I. I I never suspected that. <laughs> me neither, to be yeah. honest. Um. Yeah. <laughs> so we were sitting. Let me let me describe the situation. We're in this kind of a dark, uh, uh, curtain-drawn hotel room, and it's so full of light. It's so full of light. It is. <sighs> God, I feel like I've been talking so much and so fast and. I don't. I don't think you. You have been talking fast. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, wow! I just uh, slow. I just. I you know that moment I talked about that happens to me in, in like sitting in our circle when I go to a meeting. That just happened to me. It just. It has been happening to me all week. Yeah. <laughs> I kept coming home crying, and my girlfriend would be like, "What's wrong?" And I'd be like, "I just listened to more Paul Williams," <laughs> and I heard that. that wow that song again um so at this point paul and i need a a couple moments to get the sniffles out and uh, regain composure and i just want to take this opportunity to to tell you guys somewhere in the introduction i'd normally find some cute way to pitch how you can help this program and (laughs) i don't know like four hundred dollars so it's just not cute anymore i'm just gonna ask for what i need i need some help We have 221 people right now who are completely responsible for this program existing. They're patrons. They give a dollar or four dollars or 10 or 50 a month. And thank you guys. I I have a feeling that you're pitching in not for the content we've produced, but because you believe in what this could become. And so thank you. But we need more. If 10%, I think, of the listeners contributed something, four bucks a month, like the cost of a latte, I think we'd be completely self-sustainable. So if you can, if you're willing to, go to a website we use, www.patreon.com slash hellohuman and contribute something. And if you can't, that's okay. This program's always going to remain free, but I'm going to ask another favor of you. Take a second, like right now, to write a review. Actually write a review and and. And tell people that you like the program because that's how new people discover us. And if you have some criticism, email me at hello at hellohumans.co. And I'll listen and we'll talk about it. Thanks for being a part of this. And okay, all right, I'm going to shut up. On with the show. What was the biggest part of finding yourself like i mentioned earlier you had these hits that briefly would give you these moments of reprieve right getting a grammy yes i'm accepted in love but that fades we all know that fades i can have uh, a piece that um people really resonate with and it buys me about half a day yeah you know Uh, but you have found yourself you have become right-sized comfortable in your own skin so besides removing the drugs, what was it? I mean, wow. 
it was tribal. It was, it, but I needed a, I needed a tribe full of people that were that 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 at some point in their life were were as lost as I was. I guess you know I. I I loved the the success, you know, but I don't think I don't think it had much of a shelf life. I think you're absolutely right. I think that I needed to feel normal. I needed to feel special. The day after I won the Oscar, I won the Oscar for Evergreen with Barbara Streisand. The day after after I won the Oscar, I got a phone call from a show called Circus of the Stars, and Circus of the Stars says, you know, we've we. Uh, we were going to do a segment with the Golden Knights, the Army Freefall team, and we were looking for a celebrity that that had, you know, had uh, a freefall experience. And the only name we, we could find the name Paul Williams in, in back in the old Parachute Club of America, which was the, the name had changed and everything. But was would that be you? And I said, Yeah, I had thirty three jumps back when, when in nineteen sixty and sixty one. I made three jumps back in with the Albuquerque Parachute Club because I didn't want to just be this weird little guy who was working at a, at a, a title insurance company. I wanted to be the guy that jumped out of airplanes, you know. And the so here it was the day after I'd won the Oscar, and and I leaped at the chance to be special again, to be the guy that's jumping with the gold. And I, you know, I and there's I love the free, free fall footage in in Still Alive, you know. Cool. Because it's just the most, again, I say we're landlocked birds. I love Gonzo and the Muppets because he's a landlocked bird. That, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of, there's some part of me that just feels like a landlocked bird. So I love free fall. So I went, I started jumping again and all, I quit at 100. But, but the point is that as you, you, you talk about the, that short show, the, you know, you have that moment, you get the Grammy, you get the Oscar. I literally, the day afterward, it, I felt something, I needed something more. I needed to be special. I decided, I had this now. Uh, what I need right now is, is to be here, is to be here. You mean that old, you know, I mean, the Ram Dass, you know, be here now. I mean, I listened to you and Annie talk about it on your, the, the the first podcast. It was, and incidentally, it's amazing to hear the you know the the communication skills between the 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 total the evidently complete lack of discomfort in a conversation with the two of you. It's just, it's uh, it's it was actually intimidating. It was like, oh my god, I, I'm. An, I mean, I've I've never ever spoken to anybody in my life on I don't think on on a microphone that was as just the big breath moments with uh, with the two of you. Boy, I, my ego is going to run on that. Yeah, I intimidated you, Paul Williams. <laughs> well, you know, but it's but you know, it's like because because Annie is so real, and and it's 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 like almost I don't know. You know, it, it, reality is is so special. It's so so fantastic to just be in the moment and and and, and comfortable in your own skin. You know, sitting with the silences. You it, know, I mean, it's like I, my natural. You know, if I get the least bit uncomfortable. It, it, without even being aware of it, it is my my natural state is to fill every second with 
blither. You know, it's just, and stop it, Paul. Stop it. Listen. The, um, I loved a line in your book, which is read the directions first. And, um, I just wanted you to take us out with some direction. If your great grandchildren stumble upon this, if you could talk to your younger self, if there's some other kids or just anybody like me who your message could speak to, what so far, what you've gathered here on the planet would be your directions to really living an amazing life of, as you put it, of magic. Wow. Well, listen, listen, listen. You have spectacular, oh God, you know, I, I, there's, interesting, there's an interesting element of, 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 of conversation with you, Sam, and that's that, that I don't want to, I mean, it's so easy to say trust yourself and understand that, you know, you are magic and you can do anything and, and I can sound like a, a, you know, like a, well, But you have the gift of making me catch myself drifting into performance mode, which is which is unconscious. But to take my time and really think about that is the first thing I would tell somebody is that don't judge the things you create or the things you do by, by the way the world responds to them. Because the process of you creating the things you create or doing the things you do are a part of who you are and their value is, all, is, is, is expressed in the action. Whether it's cooking a great meal for yourself or for your family or writing a, a bestseller, or writing a great book that nobody listens to, or nobody nobody's willing to read, or a record that nobody's listening to. Don't judge. Don't 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 put a time timer on when you may get a, a reflection back of appreciation for what you've done. You know, you may do something in your twenties that will create an opportunity for you in your 40s. When I was not, I was 34 years old, I made a, a, a movie with Brian De Palma called Phantom of the Paradise. Nobody went to see it. I mean, I've and again, back to performance mode, my joke was always that I made albums that even my family didn't buy, you know, <laughs> but, and it's funny, you know, but, and, and, you know, and it's true, you know, and, but, but this little movie touched two guys in, in France who, who met at a screening and went 20 times to see Phantom of the Paradise and started performing together and writing together and put on their made masks like the, 
like Winslow and in the movie Wears and and became Daft Punk, you know. Uh, I'm working right now on a on a stage musical based on on uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth, the music I'm writing with Gustavo Santaolalla. Uh, Guillermo del Toro, in his drove his father's car wearing his father's suit, came just to see me in Mexico when he was like 16 or 17 and brought the album for me to sign, and then all these years later. All these years later came to me and, you know, uh, you just, the gift, the, the gift is in, is in the moment, you know, and don't waste time judging yourself, you know. So that's perfect. That's a, that's something that I deal with. It's not about your art blowing up or affecting thousands of people. It's you create the art and it's there and it's there to find a home if a home is needed. Yeah. I think the other thing is, is that as we move through all this, you know, we're, we're also leaving a trail of, of how we affect people. And, and I, you know, if, if I had to pick out one line that I wrote in, a, in any song ever that was my, that was my own philosophy, I think that at the there's a line in and I wrote the songs for a movie called Bugsy Malone with all these kids in it. And there's a line in it that says, "You give a little love, and it all comes back to you. You know, you're going to be remembered for the things that you say and do." Well, this the second half of it is, is probably you know me wanting to you know it's, we all want to be special or whatever. We all want to have success, but you give a little love, and it all comes back to you. Is is I believe. You know, the, the if if nothing else, it points out that that the greatest single action, the most powerful action I can take is one that that expresses kindness, and I come back to kindness again and again and again. That that there is, if if I lean into an affectionate, kind moment with any in any any moment of my life, any human being, it's going it's it has an immediate medicinal effect. On on me, uh, I mean, I, I I and I hope on them, but immediately on me, because if I can, if my if my higher self kind of pulls back and looks down at the moment, you know, and I see myself, you know, in, in acting in in love and service, if I see just just the kindness, uh, there's there's a there's an elegance that kind of it kind of crowns the moment for me. It's like that. Yeah, that's as good as it gets as people. We're really loving to each other and kind to each other, and and not looking over our shoulder to see who's following us or or who's who's fucking who, you know, whose life up or who's whatever. If we can just be kind, be you know, be sweet, be gentle, be be stupid sweet, be you know, you know. Be Hallmark card sweet, you know. There's one last thing I want to record, which is uh, in the continuing saga of everything that can go wrong today has gone wrong. The magnetic card didn't work, so we went up to the hotel room. It didn't work. We had to go back down to the lobby. You said you had a story about the card not working that affected you. Uh, when that I got 
and here's the story and it's and it's uh, when I got sober it was following a, a complete psychotic breakdown in Oklahoma City in Oklahoma City uh, I went to uh, to perform I'd been I'd been up the, the day of the gig I was staying at a hotel in, in Oklahoma City I'd been up probably two or three days yeah uh, drinking, using cocaine, and taking a little bit of, of Anavitas because I was trying to get the girl back and showing her I was... Anyway, uh, the the promoter of the gig came to uh, came to the, the hotel room and knocked on the door to get me. And we walked out of the hotel, and we were walking along the highway, or the highway, the hallway, and, uh, and he, the way he described it later was he said it was as if somebody took you and threw your body higher than your own head against the wall. And for 40 minutes, I had a total psychotic breakdown. I was tortured by a little miniature monster that nobody could see but me. I was thrown down escalator stairs, only there are no escalators in that hotel. It was, the, the stairs were moving for me, but not him. He drove me to the, to the, uh, to the venue where the, the, the university where the, the gig was. My band kind of took over trying to take care of me. The next day, I, they postponed the gig. I did it the next day, and I told the, the audience that I'd had a reaction to my meds, which is the truth, because that cocaine and, and everything, those were my meds at that time. I didn't know how to live life without them. I went back to, to, uh, to Los Angeles, and I continued to drink. And about two weeks later, in a blackout, I called a doctor, and I said I wanted to get sober. He called me back the next day, and he said... Uh, I found a place for you. I said, what are you talking about? Somebody's been using my body again. What's going on? He said, well, you called me yesterday, and you said you, you wanted to get sober. <laughs> I went, and I had that moment of surrender. I went, yeah, I don't want to drive loaded with like my dad did anymore. I don't want to crawl out the puppy door to get more drugs. You know, I don't want to drive from Santa Barbara to L.A. loaded with my kids in the car. So I went to treatment, and... and uh, and I, and I found this deal when I just got, was on fire with it. I loved it. And I went to UCLA, got my certification as a drug and alcohol counselor. I started working with the Musician's Assistance Program. I was absolutely into it. And what you heard from me again and again and again was it's all a gift. And the fact is I don't think I really believed it because I was sponsoring guys. I was speaking all over the, the country. Uh, so I've, in some way, unconsciously, I think I felt like I had earned the life I was getting. And then I went to Nashville at, at 10 years sober to write songs. And while I was there, I was asked to just go speak at the jail, you know. Uh, so I went to the jail, I went back to my hotel after, and I was feeling totally full of self. I was, you know... We, I made my way through the lobby and went up, went up to my hotel room with my magnetic key and walking down the hallway, as I always describe it, feeling like this magical combination of Jiminy Cricket and Gandhi. You know, just, you know, I have, I have shared the message, come touch the hem, I will strike you sober. I was this highly evolved spiritual giant, you know, and I, I put my 
magnetic key in and the goddamn key doesn't work for the third night in a row and it's just like and i it it's a quick trip from gandhi to himmler for me is the way i describe <laughs> it it's just you know i'm back to you know that little prick that is going god why you know what so i have to go back downstairs and there's this packed lobby this totally packed lobby of uh, guys with with badges on you know and i i and i we we have learned you know, restraint of pen and tongue in, in recovery. So I go to the desk and I say to the gentleman, you know, this is the third night in a row that my key has not worked. And I, I don't, and I know it's not your fault, but I don't understand why I should have to come back down to this lobby. And at which point there was a tap on my shoulder. And I turned around and I looked at this gentleman. He said, I don't mean to bother you, but he said, I just want to say hi. I booked you like 10 years ago and whatever. And, and I went, oh my God. Oh my God! Were you? Are you the guy that booked me? And you know when I did my Linda Blair, you know, lick me, lick me, yeah, <laughs> you know, when I did my Exorcist version of myself, he said, "Yeah, that was me." And I was like, "Well, I'm ten years sober, and I just spoke with the jail, and I went to UCLA, and blah blah, Polly this, and blah blah, Polly that." And he said, "Yeah, I heard in the rooms you were sober." And I went, "Oh my God, he's sober too." And he reached in his pocket and he pulled out a chip for 17 years. I did the math and I went, I said, you were seven years sober when, when that happened. He said, that's right. I said, what'd you think? He said, oh, Paul. I thought you looked like you were dying. He said, I was so scared. We didn't know what to think. I just, you know, you were so lost and so sick. I said, yeah, what'd you do? He said, I called my sponsor. Oh, yeah, of course you did. What did you do? He said, I'll tell you exactly what we did. He said, we got on the phone right away, and we both started calling alcoholics in Oklahoma City. And we put together a prayer circle for you. We prayed that in or out of the rooms, you would find recovery. And two weeks later, two weeks later in a blackout, I called a doctor. And I think there's a solid connection between the two, without a doubt. I think that that you know that when we join hands in a circle and pray for alcoholics suffering in and out of the rooms, there you know there's an energy there that can spin a building. That it's it's and at that moment, Sam, that it all became that whole thing about it. It, it it's all a gift became real. That I saw, you know what, you haven't earned any of it. You know, it's it's been a gift. It's all a gift. You know, uh, so that magnetic key, you know, that's that that spiritual awakening for me was was taken to a new level when uh, when I went and I met this guy whose name is Gary. I won't tell you his last name, but I saw I saw what a gift I've been given, and uh, you, you know you can't plot this course. So, you know, that's, that would be the other thing I'd tell to somebody is like, you know, make your plans and everything, but, but you can't plot this life course. You can't. All you can do is, is be loving and try to do the things you love, you know. Wow. Well, thank you for giving me the time. This has been a real treat. My intense pleasure. Thank you, man. But I'm learning to be me.
After the interview, the podcast got a new patron. Paul himself, he paid for the hotel room we had recorded in and um, said he's going to help with hotel expenses to, to keep going. So, in the words of Paul, We've only just begun. I think this program's just going to continue to get better and better with time. And thanks for being a part of this. Whoever you are and wherever you are, listener, I just want you to know that I like to think of all of us as spiritual beings, not in a religious sense, just that we're all full of an amazing spirit and love, hopes and dreams. And I hope that you share that light inside of you with everyone you see today because they're also amazing beings with hopes and dreams, even if you can't see it on the outside. Thank you for listening to episode three. And before you click stop, I want to leave you with the Grammy-winning song that Paul Williams wrote and performed with Daft Punk. So if you can, close your eyes, take a deep breath, and enjoy. Touch, I remember touch Pictures came with touch A painter in my mind Tell me what you see A tourist in a dream A visitor, it seems A half-forgotten song Where do I belong? Tell me what you see I need something more Kiss suddenly alive Happiness arrive Hunger like a storm How do I begin? A room within a room A door behind a door Touch where do you lead I need something more Tell me what you see I need something more
touch, sweet touch. You've given me too much to feel, sweet touch. You've almost convinced me I'm real. I need something more. I need something more.